Welcome to episode number 59, That Time of Year. I am your host, Damon Soka. The holidays have always been a kind of a unique time for me. I have all kinds of memories, but most of my memories are pretty recent. I do not remember any of the holidays up until about my mid-30s due to my bipolar illness. My illness and the subsequent healing in my mid-30s removed almost everything I remember from before that period of time. And even some of the time after the blessing, I simply have no pictures, visuals, nothing. It's just an empty void for me. Now, some of you might think, that's sad. But my lack of memory in many ways is a blessing for me. My mental illness does not affect my future with thoughts of those things that I have already passed through. Now, I enjoy this time of year, especially Christmas. We celebrate Christmas in December, but we know in the Church of Jesus Christ that Easter and Christmas occurred actually on the same day, 34 years apart from one another. Now, we don't often think about it much, but not only was Bethlehem alive with the taxation, but it was the season of Passover, that sacred holy day that commemorates the sacrifice of the Savior, that the chosen people might be passed over, as it were, from spiritual and physical death. Now, while the Savior was being born into this world, thousands of lambs were being slaughtered into the other, in commemoration of what the Savior would eventually do. I've thought about I've thought more about that sacrifice this past year than most any other part of the gospel. How it was that a night of suffering atoned what would be a mountain of sin. Mountain is probably not the best metaphor, given the scope and extent of what was accomplished, and yet Somehow, in those few hours of suffering, the world was made right. I've also pondered significantly that scripture in Alma 7.11 that says, And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he would take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people. As I've thought about what that scripture implies, It is most certainly talking about his entire life rather than just those few years of his ministry. I'm sure that he suffered many things during his time frame of the ministry, but it would not have been sufficient for for him to experience what the descriptions described as every kind of temptation and affliction. He must have experienced these illnesses, temptations, pains, and afflictions before his ministry in preparation for what he would need to do. Now, there's much to be learned by afflictions, pain, and temptations of this life. We cannot and do not fully know what happened before his ministry. And even the ministry is fragmented, a fragmented compiling of various journalistic accounts of important events in the Savior's life. His normal life was never put into print as far as we know it. We do not know hardly anything about those things he suffered except for that verse in Alma. But I believe that we can infer that he experienced those things as immortal, without any more divine help or aid than we would have received. There is something I also found very interesting about the Savior. Those whom he chose as his apostles did not know him before before it came to the time of his ministry, even though they lived in a similar area and community as he did. Now, he was from Nazareth, or the area of that area around there. Most of his disciples were from the seaports of Galilee. They were fishermen. 
Those two places are only about 10 to 15 miles apart. Nothing from his later ministry would indicate that he stuck out of the crowd in any way. I'm sure that he was intelligent and exceptional in his studies and work and community efforts, but it doesn't appear that he made any effort to distinguish himself before his calling. There were far too many surprised people, including his own apostles, for that to be the case. Even the ruling class in Jerusalem and his own cities were surprised by him. Now, I'm sure that they had heard the stories of Bethlehem, but the stories seemed to have faded in everyone's mind by that point in time. The New Testament even hints that his own family, in part, did not think him to be the Savior. Now, I assume that to mean his brothers and sisters. How many and what their lack of belief was, was is again at this point a point of conjecture. But it does show how very plain he was to everyone around him. Being the Savior, and who he is, I'm sure that it did not concern him very much. It was always intended that he blend in with the populace. I am sure he went about doing good. It was in his nature to do so. I'm sure that he, that many loved him in his community, as they would anyone who is so willing to serve. But they could not see beyond the mortal shell. I think this is why you see such surprise and shock when he came forth as the savior of the world. Even the rulers in his own community said, Isn't this just the son of Joseph? His brothers and sisters are with us. There were a few who did know for certain, John the Baptist, of course, the father of John the Baptist and mother, if they were still alive. The Savior's own mother and father certainly knew, but it does not appear that by the time the Savior started his mission, his father was alive. His mother was, at least by the time of his mission, a single mother. I find great comfort in the Savior's obscurity and his normalcy to the population before his mission. He was truly as one of us. He was not treated any differently, except perhaps that he grew up in a Jewish home under Roman occupation. His community recognized him only as the normal son of Joseph. They saw nothing special in him more than perhaps his intelligence, diligence, and obedience. He walked as any mortal would, of course, with the exception of sin. Why do I find his normal life so comforting? Because in many ways, I know that he truly understands. I'm sure that he was teased, bullied, made to suffer as children are by their peers. I'm sure that he passed through illnesses, problems, difficulties, and so much more, but not with some godlike help and power. He passed through it like we do, mortally, slowly, painfully. He was not spared anything in mortality, and that included rejection when everyone should have been listening to him as Savior of the world. Isaiah states that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I do not think that this scripture simply applies only to his ministry. I think that he was truly a man of sorrows and very acquainted with our grief. He could not have been saved by the Father from any experience that would have been beneficial to him. And he had to pass through those experiences without some type of saving godlike buoyancy from his Father. He passed through them as you and I do. I am sure that he had sleepless nights from pain, wounds that needed time to heal, I'm sure that he struggled with emotions and the growing pains of adolescence. 
Yes, he did so perfectly. But perfection does not reduce the pain or the suffering. It just simply means that he passed through those experiences perfectly and without sin. Those experiences for him, like us, were just as painful, just as dark, just as difficult as ours are now. And maybe because he was the Savior, perhaps more so. Now this brings me to our current topic of mental illness. I cannot say for certain that the Savior passed through every mental illness or even had one specific. But for him to have the bowels of mercy and completely understand what we passed through, he had to have experienced something that would have provided this necessary knowledge. While there is no historical record, for him to understand you and I and the suffering that is mental illness, he had to experience it in some form or fashion. And to do so, over an extended period of time. Now, the garden was about sin, both the sinner and the innocent victim. I think his his mortal, pre-mission life was where the bowels of mercy were developed. I believe this to be true because in his ministry, he already possessed that capacity and mercy, meaning for me, he learned it before his mission started. His whole life was a preparation for that short mission among his peers. I am sure that he continued to learn, but he was fully prepared before that mission in every way that he could accomplish what no other person could. He knew what it was to suffer as we do in our mental illness, in our loneliness, in our darkness, and in our suffering. He walked as any other mortal and saw as we now see it and felt it as we now feel it. I am sure that he pleaded with his father to relieve him, as we do. He seemed to have experience with those feelings and difficulties and pains when he uttered those words again in the garden, let this cup pass from me. He appeared to have many long discussions with his father. He prayed all night before he chose his apostles. He expressed prayer as a great power in his life. And I doubt that he was just given a gift of prayer. He learned it as we do. He learned to speak with his father, plead when things were difficult, express gratitude when being grateful was hard to see, express love for his neighbors, including later in his life when they wanted him dead. He learned to love his father in heaven as any mortal would, but also as his son. I'm sure that he knew that he was to be the savior of the world, very young. We see him talking in the temple about being about his father's work when he was 12. But I'm sure it was not all given to him at once. His mission was given him line upon line, precept upon precept, as we receive it. And I'm sure that he learned at a much accelerated pace, but that was simply a matter of obedience, not some all-at-once gift of the father. It appears what he learned he mostly kept to himself. As I said previously, No one seemed to know him as the Savior when he started his mission. How must that have been to fully understand who you were in the pre-earth life, your mission in this life, but knowing that not even those closest to you in the community recognized you for who you really were? Jehovah, the great God, was walking about among them, and all they could see was Joseph's son. I believe that the Savior knows me very personally, I have had in the past difficulties with this concept, given the, given the staggering number of people upon this earth and perhaps other earths. How could he know each of us so personally? 
It took me a while to understand fully how he does this. But before I fully understood, I could feel his presence in a very real way in my life. Now, this doesn't always mean that he was present personally, although I believe that he does visit the earth often, ministering to his children. He more often sends others from both this side and the other side of the veil, with very personal messages, promptings, and insights to help us on our way. Now, I've been asked a time or two, have you seen him personally? The answer is, of course. I just don't remember the pre-earth life. Now, I know what the question really means, and that is a very personal experience to each individual. Those experiences are sacred and personal, and in reality do not prove anything to the other person other than that I have had or another has had that experience. The knowledge and experience is simply not transferable. Each individual must have his or her own experience with the Lord. And in Doctrine and Covenants 93, I believe in the first verse, that promise is contained. Those experiences vary from fully seeing and knowing and hearing his voice to those powerful moments when you were overcome by the Spirit when you testified to him. Each of us must see him in our own way and time. I know that the Lord knows you fully as he does me. He knows about your illness in every detail and moment. I believe that while we do not always see him or those whom he sends to us, we often have visitors in time of need when we ask. They may be able to only comfort and strengthen us as the angel did for Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ still had to complete his mission and the atonement. Sometimes that is the case for us. We are going, still going to need to work through it work through those deep emotional moments with that angel standing by us. Now, the pandemic has left us feeling lonelier than ever during this time of year. Isolated, fearful, a little lost, perhaps a lot lost. Many of our gathering traditions have been left behind. Some of us have lost someone we were hoping that would be here at Christmas. Everything this year seems to have been another stick laid on the fire that is mental illness. And even sometimes a stick feels as though it's been soaked in gasoline. What I do know is that while more suffering has occurred, more ministering from the other side of the veil has also occurred. The Lord sends his angels in great time of need, and he must have sent many of them this year. Christmas will not be the same for most of us this year but I hope that you find time to really ponder how much the Savior has worked in your life over the last year. Even when your illness felt out of control and your suffering seemed greater than normal, you are his whole life. When he accepted the calling of a Savior, there was no end to it. He was not a Savior until you're celestialized. He was to be our Savior for the eternities. He knows you loves you, and truly has been where you are in mortality. Keep to faith, do your small part, and fight, and he will do his part. Until next week.